Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. When I got Sarah Zhang on the line, I asked her to tell me the story of Victoria Rutledge. Yeah, so Victoria is someone who has always thought of herself as someone with an addictive personality. Sarah covers science and medicine for The Atlantic. You know, the example she gave me is that she had been addicted to alcohol when she was younger and she had gotten sober, but uh, sort of had kind of replaced her addiction with to alcohol with food and shopping. Like she told me that she would spend something like $500 on groceries every two weeks. Victoria would buy so much food that it would rot in her fridge. If she went to Target to run an errand, she'd find herself compulsively buying one thing after another, unable to stop. Just, like, start throwing candles or, like, makeup or skincare into her car, even though she didn't really need it, but she just, she saw it. She just, like, really needed to do that. Then, a few months ago, Victoria started taking semaglutide for weight loss. That's the medication sold under the brand names Ozempic and Wegovy. There's also Manjaro, which is slightly different, but has similar effects. When Victoria went on semaglutide, she lost weight. But something else started to happen, something she noticed on one of those errand runs. She just walked out of Target one day, she told me, and she realized, oh, hey, like, my cart, like, I didn't buy anything I didn't need to. I only got the things I wanted. Like, what's going on? <laughs> so it was almost like a, a switch had flipped in her brain where she was no longer addicted to shopping. And she realized, oh, of course, she, like, hadn't been buying all this food either. Um, but just, like, this kind of, like, addictive, compulsive habits that she had had her entire life had kind of gone away. Today on the show, could Ozempic and the drugs like it actually help fight addiction. Sarah walks us through the promise and the big unknowns. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. If you've heard of Ozempic or semaglutide, you may have heard about how it makes you skinny. Hollywood predictably loves it, celebrities are taking it, and it's used off-label by people trying to lose weight. You want Ozempic? Yeah. God, what housewife isn't on Ozempic? Not one. Not. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, no, not her. Half your cast. <laughs> I know. I, mean, yeah. I wasn't going to come to a reunion looking any bigger than anyone else, so wow. I got on the Despite the intense real housewife interest, Ozempic and Munjaro are only approved by the FDA to treat diabetes. Wegovi is also approved for weight loss. All these medications were initially developed for diabetes management. I asked Sarah to walk me through how semaglutide works. It was originally developed to help regulate insulin. So we know that it acts on the pancreas so that people who have diabetes are able to help regulate their blood sugar. And sort of in those initial trials, um, researchers realized, oh, well, people with diabetes who are taking this, they're also losing weight, which, you know, is usually not an unwelcome side effect. So then it kind of became repurposed as a weight loss drug. In the past couple of years, we've seen this really explode in like popularity as a weight loss drug. Uh, in those same trials, researchers also noticed that um, people were becoming less interested in alcohol. You know, just anecdotally, people were reporting they'd become less interested in alcohol or, you know, people who spontaneously quit smoking. I mean, think about how hard it is to quit smoking. Yeah. And kind of just like one day out of the blue, realize, oh, I have stopped smoking. Um, and so this anecdotal reports kind of also really informed a lot of like kind of early interest in testing in animals to see whether this could actually be uh, something that goes beyond just diabetes and weight loss. Patients say that addictive urges are quieted when they're on these drugs. But exactly how they work is still a little bit mysterious. A lot of times in, in medicine, we see a drug has this effect. We don't really know how it works. and uh, but, it, but you can sort of see why there are parallels, right? Like some people with obesity, it's maybe because they have a, really, a compulsive relationship with food. You know, some patients I've talked to who've taken Ozempic for weight loss, um, they've talked about how like they just constantly have this like food noise in their head. And they'll, they'll wake up in the morning and be like, oh, what should I have for breakfast? What should I have for dinner? What should I have for lunch? Should it be Mexican? Should it be Chinese? And once they've been on the drug, that kind of chatter just totally quieted down. Uh, it's almost like the sense of calm in their brains. And you can imagine like that might be true for someone with addiction to drugs or alcohol as well. Well, what's the mechanism through which they work? They, they act on the dopamine receptors. Is that right? So the short answer is we don't really know. But we do have a pretty clear sense that these uh, drugs are acting on the brain directly. Um, we know that they can kind of enter the bloodstream and then like actually act on the brain and like there are receptors that it can kind of directly attach to on the brain. And it seems to be related to the like 
reward circuit in the brain, which is where dopamine gets involved. I think dopamine sort of commonly gets shorthanded as like the pleasure molecule or like, you know, you do something that feels good and there's like a squirt of dopamine in your brain. It's definitely a little bit more complicated than that. Another way to think about it is that there's actually a distinction between wanting to do something and liking it or taking pleasure in it when you actually do it. And, uh, you know, nail biting might actually be a very good example of this. You know, you might feel like you really, really want to do it, even though biting your nails is not exactly something any of us really thinks of as pleasurable. And so actually it seems there's some evidence now to suggest that maybe dopamine is really more about um, involved in the wanting rather than the liking. And so maybe if you're acting on this kind of circuit in the brain, what you're tamping down on is the wanting to do things, you know, wanting to keep eating, wanting to drink, wanting to bite your nails, uh, even though it does not necessarily affect whether you're able to take pleasure things or take pleasure in life. Yeah, I was with a couple of people on on Ozempic not too long ago, and and they just described like, nah, I don't really, I don't, I don't really want to eat. And like, no, nah, I don't want that glass of wine. Like, it just seemed to be switched off. Yeah, I think it sort of really sort of hits at like how strange it feels that like a chemical can alter your 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 behavior and your desire and your wants and your appetite so much. I think you know we sometimes think like to think we are who we are and like uh, on like a metaphysical level, but really we're also um, you know we're also biology and chemistry, <laughs> and and this chemical could really alter just uh, how you act and behave. Semaglutide as an addiction drug might sound strange. But there is a growing body of research on animals that seems to show this class of drugs can change behavior. So semaglutide, it belongs to a class of drugs called GLP-1. They kind of mimic a hormone called GLP-1 in the human body. And so semaglutide is kind of like the second generation of these drugs, but the first generation has been around for a while. So a lot of the early research is the animal research has kind of been in that first generation of drugs. One of them is Sexenda, which people might also know is a drug that's sometimes prescribed for weight loss. And Ozempic or um, semaglutide is like a newer and improved and possibly more effective version of that. And so in these original trials, um, you know, even before semaglutide came along, but with these earlier drugs, uh, you know, researchers were already noticing that people were reporting that they were less interested in, in drinking. And so, yeah, that's when people, that's when they were like, hey, well, let's try taking this into a lab and studying it, uh, this like isolated behavior. And so, you know, there, there are various ways you can study this. You can sort of see, you know, if you have um, basically like rats hooked up to like a, a cocaine injection, like, and you give them this drug, does that alter their cocaine seeking behavior? And it does seem to. Um, one researcher I, I talked to, he ended up studying these um, monkeys on an island in the Caribbean. Um, some of these monkeys sort of just naturally seem genetically predisposed to really, really loving alcohol. Um, originally, you might think this is rotting fruits, but like this is a, being a Caribbean island, it's like gone to the point where they like they steal tourists alcoholic drinks. Oh, they like go swipe somebody's rum? Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and so he was, also, this is like an interesting population to study if you're trying to study alcoholism, right? So he studied these monkeys and said like, hey, if you give them a drug that is similar to semaglutide, does that also curb their drinking behavior? And it seems to do that as well. Um, again, you know, these are all, all in animals, so that's not not humans. Uh, but this and all of these anecdotal reports together now sort of point to an interesting direction. You you were one of the first journalists to write about this. And like, as you were piecing it together, were bells going off in your head? 
I think it was. And I think that's because, you know, these anecdotes are so compelling. And a lot of times uh, as a journalist, you often see people saying, oh, like, you know, this weird thing happened to me when I did this. But like, how do you know whether it's caused, like, did it actually cause that or not? Um, But the fact that scientists had actually been studying this for a long time, that made me think, well, there really is a story here. This isn't just, you know, people noticing things and like attributing it to a drug that they started taking. It's like, yeah, yeah, there's probably something going on. And there's a real community of researchers who are really interested in studying whether this drug really does have an effect as an addiction drug. When we come back, if an injection can fight addiction, does that change our understanding of it? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. While research on animals and semaglutide has been going on for years, human trials are just starting to take off. I know of at least two trials, one for smoking and one for alcohol. There have been um, a couple of really, really small studies in humans, not none of Ozempic particularly, but of sort of the earlier generation of drugs studying fat and addiction. They're, they're so small, like literally like five people, that they're pretty inconclusive. There's another study with alcohol, actually, which showed that when uh, people with alcohol use disorder, when they were shown pictures of alcohol, and they were on one of these drugs, the the reward centers in their brains did not light up as much as they normally would. So this kind of seems like maybe they were getting, you know, kind of less wanting. Researchers put people on an FRMI machine and show them pictures of alcohol. In functional MRI machines, so they, they can see what's happening in their brain. Yeah, so looking at brain activity and saying, like, what kind of brain activity do you have when we show you a picture of, you know, a martini or something? And people who have alcohol use disorder, like, you can imagine that the part of their brain lights up when they see pictures of alcohol. Uh, when they found that if you gave them, you know, one of these drugs, that part of their brain that is like, oh, alcohol, like, that seemed to have been quieted. Um, what was sort of interesting about that study, though, is that once you looked at whether people actually changed their behavior, it did not seem like uh, on a whole that people started drinking less. But they, they, they found that like a subset of people who had obesity started drinking less. You know, they're unlikely to be like a panacea. They're unlikely to be a cure-all that works for everyone. But it's possible that there's like a subset of people for whom it works really well for. Um, and that might depend on, for example, like why someone you know, developed addiction in the first place. I mean, one of the things I find so interesting is that the, there are drugs that have been developed and tailored toward fighting addiction in very specific ways, whether we're talking about nicotine or alcohol or whatever. And this seems to be more broad-based. And like, that's how 
you end up with these anecdotes that you've described where people sort of notice, oh, by the way, I want this other thing less. Yes, exactly. Right. A lot of the addiction treatments out there are kind of very specific to the type of addiction that they're treating. Um, so, you know, like an opioid can maybe like specific to, you know, blocking the action of like opioid receptors. Um, what the Zumpac or semiglutide seems to do is it seems to kind of be like a higher layer of abstraction. It just seems to like curb the wanting in general. And that seems to generalize across like lots of different behaviors and lots of different substances, uh, which is really fascinating. I think for addiction researchers, you know, for addiction researchers who are like like interested in this space, like that's also exactly what is like so promising and like interesting about this drug. Is, is there a similar dulling of other wants, desires, and, and loves? Or, or is it just for this specific kind of craving? Yeah, that was the sort of <laughs> burning question I had going into reporting this. And from people I talked to, they said, no, like, you know, I can still enjoy other things in life. Like, I still enjoy going out with my friends. I still enjoy interacting with my kids. It's not like I'm sitting around and depressed and, like, just take no pleasure in life anymore. What it really seems to do is kind of tamp down those behaviors, those addictions that had become compulsive to a level that was like really affecting their lives. And so instead of having this constant feeling of like, oh, I need to like think about that, like Lululemon drop next week, or I need <laughs> to like, oh, what am I going to eat for dinner? Do I want Mexican or want tacos? Um, sort of that like that constant chatter, that almost distraction, really. People talk about it as a distraction. That distraction goes away. And instead, they're able to kind of be more present in what they're actually doing and what's in front of them. This quote-unquote noise in people's heads has led to speculation about what else Ozempic could potentially treat. On TikTok, naturally, people are speculating about using it for ADHD. Since starting Ozempic, I would say about two months in, things really changed for me. The first two months, it, I think it was like my body was getting used to it. But after two months, I found that um, my brain fog is basically non-existent. Like the amount of clarity I have in my mind is unreal. Obviously, it's not a cure for ADHD, but it is kind of helping with some of the things that you struggle with with ADHD. It's really interesting is that... Um, I I did not think about ADHD when I was originally writing this piece, but several of the people I talked to kind of unprompted told me they had ADHD. And then after I wrote the story, several readers reached out to me saying like, hey, like, you know, this things you're talking about, that sounds like ADHD. I wonder if this would work for ADHD. Um, and I think that's really fascinating. As far as I know, this was not something on the radar of ADHD researchers. Uh, but it does seem to be that there's something... You know, when we want something, like there's something about that being the focus of our attention. And mm. you can you can think that something that kind of takes away your attention or shifts your attention might also work for ADHD. This all sounds incredibly promising. And yet, at, you know, with every story that I have done on these drugs or, or, or every piece that I've read, the side effects can be pretty intense. Vomiting, digestive upset, headaches. <sighs> That's what we seem to know about the short term. Is there any information about the the long term or will we wake up in five years and learn it then? No, we really don't know. I mean, as you're saying, like we know what happens in the short term, but these drugs, they haven't been along around for that long. You know, these are uh, certainly for diabetes and weight loss. These are drugs that we're thinking people might need to take for the rest of their lives. So you can imagine 
you know, taking it for 30, 40, 50. <laughs> There's talk of giving it to teens. So, you know, if it works in the future, you're taking it for like decades. And we really don't know simply because these drugs have not been around for decades. Um, what we do know is that when people take this for, for weight loss, at least, um, once they stop taking the drug, and of course, this is, we're talking about the scale of months or years. We're not talking about the scale of decades. But if you've been taking this drug for like months or years and you stop taking it, the effects actually do go away pretty quickly, right? Mm. People, their appetite comes back. Uh, most people regain the weight that they lost. So, you know, there's definitely some short-term effects that can be reversed pretty quickly uh, given what we currently know. But if we're talking about decades... No, we don't know what's going to happen. Is anyone prescribing this off-label for various addiction disorders now? That's a good question. I have not heard of anyone doing that specifically, um, but I think it's really been in the past couple of months that even the awareness of this drug being possibly used for addiction has really gone up. So I don't know. It's it's possible. You know, there's there's a shortage of the drug. It's so hard for yeah. so many people to get a hold of it. Um, but... Yeah, who knows? You know, you can prescribe anything off-label. I think the the uh, the challenge is getting hold of it or in most cases paying for it if insurance is not covering it. Because it, it it's not always covered by insurance. No, in fact, most of the times it's not. And if you're prescribing an off-label, it's definitely not being covered by insurance. In addition, it can be hard to get semaglutide even if you are prescribed it for diabetes. Because it's so popular for off-label use, there are nationwide shortages. Plus, not Everyone on the drug experiences the anti-addictive effects. It's unclear exactly what differentiates the people who do. Yeah, we, we don't know the answer, but, you know, I asked one of the researchers I talked to to kind of speculate a little bit about like, oh, who might this work for? Who might it doesn't? And he sort of gave the example that, you know, think about alcohol. Maybe some people are drinking alcohol because they're self-medicating for something else. Maybe it's really they have social anxiety and that's why they're drinking alcohol. Maybe some people are drinking alcohol because they are genetically predisposed to kind of um, take a lot of pleasure from alcohol, like their brains are just wired that way. You could imagine that this drug might work better for that second group who'd kind of have this like predisposition to take a lot of, um, to really want alcohol. Like the brains just are wired to want alcohol. That, that you might imagine this drug might work better than for people who are, you know, drinking for reasons such as masking social anxiety. But the bottom line is we, we don't really know. And uh, maybe in a few years time, we'll have a better answer. Um, it could be that if you're someone who has a lot of different kind of compulsive behaviors that underlies like many things in life that you know, this might be something that might be more effective for you than someone who just has only alcohol because uh, for various reasons that the addiction that you happen to develop. One of the things I find so fascinating, just like spinning out to, to the slightly more theoretical realm here is like both the, the potential for addiction treatment, but also like what that means. I mean, I feel like in the past 30 years or so, society has made big leaps and bounds in our understanding of various addictions or, you know, thinking about them as chronic health issues and and disease. And like what what happens and what meaning does it impart if a shot can just make that go away? Yeah, I think it's a really similar with obesity as well, right? The idea that these um, these these conditions that oh, there's often like a moral valence to them. It's like it's a matter of willpower. Yes. It's you know, a matter of being able to uh, morality. Uh, but we're finding that really it's also just a matter of brain chemistry. 
I think for addiction researchers who have been studying this for a long time, they really hope that the fact that this drug <laughs> can have such a, a remarkable effect on behavior kind of takes away a little bit of the stigma of addiction because it really is a biochemical um, condition and not just a, a matter of willpower. Um, you know, people I talk to who've been on on the drug and have just seen not only has it changed their weight loss, but also their you know other habits such as picking their skin or addictions to drugs. They, they told me that it. Help, has helped them give them a little bit more grace for themselves because they kind of had beat themselves up their whole lives about like, you know, these things that they couldn't really control. And they realized, oh, actually it was just out of my control. Now I'm taking this drug and it has just completely changed, you know, my life. I was talking after I read your piece to, to someone in my life from very close to who has a substance use disorder and just is sober now and he basically said, like, yes, yeah, sign me up. Like, if I could do this, that would be amazing. And then said, on the one hand, it feels like a, a shortcut to, you know, sort of skipping the work. But also, you know, if it gets you there and it gets you safer, then great. You know, it's so interesting. I, I feel like a lot of people I've talked to, not only with the sort of starting it is this a shortcut, but often talk about even though doctors say this is a lifelong drug, there's often quite a bit of resistance about really thinking about it as a lifelong drug. Um, quite a few people I talked to have said, hey, I want to use this drug to help me build better habits, mm. but then I just want to get off of it and like kind of keep those habits. Not unlike antidepressants. Yes, yes. Like, right, thinking of this drug as like a bridge rather than something you might have to take lifelong. Whereas, you know, I think a lot of doctors would say, no, this is probably a drug you're going to have to take, at least when it comes to weight loss, a drug you're going to have to take for the rest of your lives. Yeah, and I think there is a lot of still, you know, as you say, a kind of resistance to this idea that, oh, a drug can like can make you skip all of that hard work. Um, but I think we're all, we're also finding, and certainly I really felt this when I started talking to people, is that uh, our brains are all really different. It's like hard for us to know what it's like to live um, inside the mind of someone else. And sure, it's like, you know, if for an ordinary person... So, so, you know, one thing that I've heard a lot is people will say, oh man, like I've gotten into Zempec and like I used to be someone who thought about food all the time. I could not stop thinking about food. And now I go to a party and like, I don't, I'm no longer like thinking about the cookie tray all the time. Is this what everyone else's brain is like? Huh. Um, so I think it's, you know, for some people, especially for whom these drugs might be working, it really could be that their brains are actually a little bit different. And it's not necessarily a matter of like how hard you're working. We don't know what it's like to be in mind of someone else. And I think the fact that you can, this drug can like kind of shift you between states uh, is like a really powerful example of like how behavior is, has this biological and chemical basis. What happens now? Like do, does does the FDA start thinking about the the different use cases here or sort of do we continue in this nether world where people are talking about it on the internet and trying to get a hold of it in all sorts of maybe slightly dodgy ways. Yeah, I think we might be in this kind of netherworld gray area for a while. You know, we're, we're pretty far out from any clinical trials that can kind of definitively prove that these drugs uh, can really have an effect on addiction. So we're kind of in the world of anecdote and, you know, animal studies. To really get FDA approval just requires, you know, years of follow-up and we're nowhere close to that point. So, you know, using these drugs off-label is 
pretty, pretty common or it's not uncommon in other cases with other drugs. Um, but you are also in a world where uh, there's a shortage, but there's also this way to get it from compounding pharmacies that are not from the actual manufacturer. So I think we unfortunately might be in this kind of compelling, but like not definitive world for a while. What does that mean if you are someone who say read your story or listens to this conversation and says, oh my God, like this, this could change my life. Like, are you going down a path that you don't have any support kind of while you're doing that? Or like what, what happens? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, when I was writing about this, I wasn't really thinking about people who are deliberately seeking out the drug for addiction. It was more like people noticing this after they were taking it for diabetes or taking it for weight loss. Yeah, unfortunately, we just don't know enough to definitively say what will happen to you if you take this drug. And and to be clear, this doesn't necessarily happen to everyone. It seems to you know be have a more drastic effect on this kind of compulsive behavior for some people than for others. I there were also people who said no, it didn't help me. With with like picking my skin or you know pulling out my hair at all, um, and it's hard to predict uh, who for whom it'll work for, for whom it doesn't. Um, you know, at this point, like access to the drug is is so both so gated and also so like double tiered, right? Mm. Like if you can get prescribed for it and you can use and cover it, that's so different than if you are going online and ordering from a compounding pharmacy, which the FDA has you know is now warning against. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's sort of a really unsatisfying space where your doctor is probably not going to have that much to tell you about it just because scientists don't have that much data about it. Um, yet people are kind of talking about it in, in the media and we're all kind of speculating about what's happening. Sarah Zhang, thank you so much for, for your reporting and for talking to me about it. Yeah, thank you for such an interesting conversation. Sarah Zhang is a staff writer at The Atlantic. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Shannon Paulus. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. And TBD is part of the larger What Next family. We are also a part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you like what we are doing here, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.